Welcome back to the Brawn Body Podcast. We've got an exciting episode coming up for you. So this episode was actually a Q&A uh, sort of thing. So we put out open to anyone, just any kind of questions that they might have had. And we got some great questions. And I'm excited to dive into them and provide some answers and some context to you. Uh, so we'll be talking about things like intermittent fasting, we'll be talking about core training, we'll be talking about the different types of fitness programs that I offer, all kinds of different things. Uh, so I'm really excited to dive into that with you today. Hope you are too. Um, these episodes, as you know, uh, there's no charge to listen to a podcast. It's kind of free. But the time and effort that I spend putting into these. So I usually spend, you know, somewhere about an hour, hour and a half recording, depending on the length of the episode. I spend time doing audio editing. And then I even spend more time doing research and gathering notes and that sort of thing to put the context of these episodes together for you. So this all takes probably four or five hours a week in total because I have to read a lot of articles, filter out the good, the bad, the ugly, that sort of thing. And this is all brought to you by the Brawn Body Training Business. So as you know, we offer custom fitness programming. We offer pre-built programs, uh, fitness consultations, mobility screenings, a lot of different services. So if you're interested in any of that or you know someone who is, please feel free to send them over to our Instagram page or any other social media avenue. We are at Brawn Body, Brawn with a W on everything. So with that, let's dive into our first question. So our first question came from a Instagram direct message, and it was about intermittent fasting. Essentially, this person was asking, what exactly is intermittent fasting? Why is it that I am always preaching it and just such a big proponent of it? Uh, so first, I'm going to start out with the personal stuff, and then I'll get into the scientific stuff. So personally, growing up in high school, that sort of thing, I always ate breakfast, lunch, dinner, I had snacks, I kind of ate whenever I felt like eating, that sort of thing. Uh, well, then I got to college, and I was kind of realizing that my health wasn't as good as I thought it was. You know, in high school, I came from a real small high school. Some of you know that. I graduated about 45 kids. So it's very easy to stand out as like the fit kid or that sort of thing when you don't have a whole lot of competition. But then you get to college and, you know, if health and fitness is your ordeal and that's kind of what you know yourself as and that's kind of how I sell myself, saw myself as a freshman here, I realized I had a lot to catch up on. Uh, no one else was intermittent fasting or anything like that, but I had heard about it. So I looked into it a little more and thought that, you know, for a lot of the issues I was experiencing, it would be a great option. Um, <clears throat> so like I said, I pretty much ate whenever I wanted to. Well, as a result of that, you know, you kind of lose control. And when you're a freshman in college, losing control of your eating situation is never a good thing. I also struggled with bloating. So I wake up and I would just feel very bloated. I wouldn't always feel energetic and I didn't always have the best mood uh, early on in my college career. And uh, with that, uh, a lot of people, especially in their freshman year, had uh, gastrointestinal type issues. 
And a lot of that we blamed on the dining hall because, as you know, those college dining halls just go out of their way to provide the best and highest quality food for you all the time. Well, I'd heard that intermittent fasting can help with all those things, so I decided to give it a try, and what do you know, it did. Uh, It helped me improve my energy levels, my mood, it reduced my cravings, and I have gone 24 hours plus without being hungry before, and I've been fine uh, gastrointestinal-wise. I've been very, very healthy for a very long time. Uh, The only little thing that threw me off was when I had a inguinal hernia, Um, but when you blow three holes through your inguinal ligament and your intestines are literally in your femur and your pelvis, I think that's a reasonable enough uh, claim to why you have those kinds of issues. But I really liked it. I noticed a lot of benefits from it. I thought it was easy to do. And then I kind of delved into it more and more and more. And the more I got into it, the more convinced I was that this is, you know, something legitimate. This is not a fad. And I think it can be used to help a lot of people. And I still do it to this day. I do a daily 18 to 20 hour fast. And every now and then, usually about three or four a year, I do 24 plus, so longer fast for additional benefits. So another personal side on fasting here is I like to think about things intuitively. I like to apply a little common sense. And when it comes to eating and nutrition, uh, a lot of the things we're eating and consuming in the 21st century here are highly processed, highly artificial. So much of the stuff you're eating comes from a lab. Think about that. Think about all the things you eat that come in some kind of package. You know, even the meats that you're eating these days, the meat you're eating now is not the same as the meat that was being consumed 200 years ago. So if you look ancestrally, we've had hundreds of thousands of years of consuming wild berries, wild vegetables, unprocessed, untouched, meats, organ meats, all these different things, right? We've only had these highly processed foods, high sugar, high, you know, refined seed oils and vegetable oils, canola oil, all of that. We've only had these newer products for, I'd say, 50, 60 years at most, right? So our body is still trying to catch up to these changes that we've had in our nutrition and food supply. So we're still behind. So that says our bodies are built to handle Uh, wild berries, vegetables like organic, untouched, ungenetically modified vegetables and fruits. There is a key difference there. Uh, Wild meats, uh, untouched milk, so things like raw milk, that sort of thing. That's what our body's meant to handle. And we're putting a lot of stuff into it that is not that. You know, nothing is, like I don't know many people who are consuming raw milk and organ meats and game meats and wild berries on a daily basis. And maybe you do, and that's great. But with that, you know, you need to provide your body with a chance to reset itself because ancestrally, we had that chance every day. So think about it. If you woke up a thousand years ago, you didn't have a refrigerator. You couldn't just walk into your kitchen and get something to eat. 
you didn't have a supermarket or a grocery store. So what did you do? Odds are you probably either got up and went hunting or fishing, or you got up and started looking for berries or something of that sort that you could gather. And maybe, um, you know, there's archaeological evidence that suggests that humans were making things like bread and that sort of thing for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Maybe you had a little bit left over. Again, we didn't have, you know, the nice plastic wrap to preserve it. We didn't have preservatives to keep things good for a prolonged period of time. And you can actually see that in some foods in today's age. You know, if you make your own bread from scratch and you do it without preservatives, it's not going to last very long if you just leave it out on the counter. Same with raw milk. Even if you refrigerate raw milk, you know, you're not going to be drinking that stuff for two weeks. I'm sorry. But that's just not natural. So we were kind of ingrained and built to have intermittent fasting or periods of time where we're not consuming things and putting food into our body and we're doing other things. So again, hunters, if you woke up and you had to go hunting, well, then you were probably out in the woods moving around. You were uh, probably using a bow because, you know, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, we weren't walking around with guns everywhere. We had longbows and recurve bows. And the thing you have to realize about these bows that they used in early hunting is they had 100 plus pound draw on them. And you can look this up if you don't believe me, but some of the archaeological evidence goes up to 140 pound draw on these bows. Now, think about, I don't know if any of you are familiar with archery, uh, I shoot a compound bow. So essentially, my compound bow, you can adjust how much the draw weight is to pull it back. You can adjust um, the length, all these different things, and really optimize it for yourself. It's very customizable. And when you pull it back to full draw length, you hold it there, and it's very easy to hold there because of the pulley system built into the bow. Well, these bows did not have that. So not only were you pulling back 100 pounds of force, but you were holding it there for five to 10 seconds, holding it steady while you lined up your shot. And what if you missed? Well, then you probably had to do it all again. You probably had to go, you know, move around more, find another animal, stop, be quiet, line up your shot, that sort of thing. So think about this from a exercise standpoint. So this would be the equivalent to waking up, going on probably a 20 to 30 minute walk, and then grabbing a 100 to 110 pound dumbbell and pulling it up into a row and holding it there for 10 seconds. How many of you do you think, uh, how many of you think you could do that right now? Just get up and go do that. <clears throat> Probably not too many. These are challenging things. And again, people were doing this without food. So maybe they got up and they got lucky, right? You know, maybe, you know, woke up at 6 a.m. and they had their kill, they uh, killed their deer at 8 a.m. Okay, great start. Well, now you have to get the deer back to wherever it is that your place of inhabitants was. And maybe that's 100 yards. Maybe that's two miles. They didn't really have a concept of distance at the time as far as I've been able to tell. We didn't have a GPS that said, you know, you're two miles from home right now. They would have to load up the deer and either drag it or carry it all the way back to wherever their house was. So think about that now. How much does a deer weigh? They're not light, I can assure you that. 
So now you got to pick that up or drag it all the way back to wherever it is that you're either, you know, set up for camp or sleeping or maybe you built a house, whatever it is. Well, now you have to put in a lot of work to clean and gut the deer because the meat is on the inside. It doesn't just magically appear to you uh, like it does in these video games. Apparently, you can kill a deer and walk up and just take the meat from it in some of these video games. I forget what all they're called. Um, But that's not how it works in real life. You have to put in a lot of work. So even if you did kill it by 8 a.m., maybe you get back to your place of inhabitants at 9, maybe you spend an hour, hour and a half gutting the deer. Now it's 10.30, and you're just now getting to the meat. So now you got to cook the meat. How long is that going to take? Well, you need to start a fire. Hopefully you have firewood. Hopefully the fire's already going, right? And are you going to eat meat straight up or are you going to add something in with it? Now you might have to scavenge and forage for uh, some raw berries or whatever that way. So there's a lot more work that went into prepping their food. And as a result, these people did not eat for a period of time because they didn't have the convenience factors that we have today. So I think using that intuitive and common sense approach, using intermittent fasting makes sense, right? Um, So it tends to be more primitive in nature. So with that, let's break down some of the evidence and the science. So it is very effective for weight loss. Um, Multiple trials have proved this, And I've even got some personal testimonials from friends of mine and people I've worked with and trained who have lost significant amounts of weight using intermittent fasting. Um, And I'll talk about why this is later on. But there's multiple studies that showed um, the 5-2 fasting protocol, which if you're not familiar with that, is basically you're restricting your calories to five to 700 calories uh, per day for two days a week. So you're never doing a time-restricted fasting. You're doing two days of caloric-restricted fasting. Um, and I know some people are going to you know, come back at me on that and say, well, you know, that's going to slow down their metabolism over time and hang on to that for about 10 minutes or so, and I'll address that and clear that up for you. Uh, But the article I'm looking at here is titled The Effect of Intermittent Energy and Carbohydrate Restriction Versus Daily Energy Restriction on Weight Loss and Metabolic Disease Risk risk Markers in Overweight Women. This was published in 2013. A very well-constructed article. I really like the way they uh, put this together. I really like their study design. Um, They had a pretty uh, decent, good, uh, decently sized uh, sample, that sort of thing. Um, They assessed over 400 people for eligibility. They excluded 291 and then ran uh, 115 through this protocol. So it's not like you were looking at the results of about five people. They actually had a fair amount here. And again, this was specific to women, but uh, again, five to fasting period. So There's no time restriction here. It's just a caloric restriction. Um, And I've got another trial up here. uh, And this one was looking at overweight but somewhat healthy men. And this was a randomized control trial, RCT, published in the Aging Male Journal. Um, So it's a medical journal that is 
basically anything that men who are growing older need. Uh, and this one's titled Improvement of Metabolic Parameters in Healthy Older Adult Men Following a Fasting Calorie Restriction Intervention. And their conclusion here was uh, FCR, which as you can imagine was fasting uh, calorie restriction, improved metabolic parameters and DNA damage in healthy older adult men. So now we're even getting into a little bit of a genetic component here with the DNA. And again, we had men 50 to 70 years old in this study. Uh, and I think we had about 60, yep, 56 people in this study. So, and again, this was a RCT, which is one of the highest levels of experimental study we can do. And these were both in overweight populations. So effective in overweight men, effective in overweight women. What about healthy people? Because not everyone doing this is overweight or obese. I'm not overweight or obese. So why am I doing it? So there's another article I'm going to reference here. And this was published in 2016. I think it was Journal of Translational Medicine, I believe. Uh, it, was an, it was titled, Effects of Eight Weeks of Time-Restricted Feeding Using a 16-8 Approach, meaning 16 hours of fasting with an eight-hour feeding window on basal metabolism, so overall uh, caloric expenditure during the day, maximal strength, body composition, inflammation, and cardiovascular risk factors in uh, resistance-trained males. So people who were similar to me. And this was a clinical trial. So this is another very high-level body of evidence. And they looked at 34 men in total. They were consuming all of their normal meals and normal calorie amounts. The only thing they changed was they restricted them to an eight-hour window of eating. Well, eating in this eight-hour window, and this was in uh, eight weeks, it showed reduced fat mass amongst other things. Um, so this suggests that an intermittent, intermittent fasting program where you're literally not changing anything other than when you're eating in conjunction with your normal resistance training improves your health-related biomarkers, decreases fat mass, and allows you to maintain muscle mass all at the same time. So a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to say, that's music to my ears. I can lose fat without having to worrying about muscle. Um, and I will keep going on this here. Um, so in addition to the fat loss, obviously you're going to see some good impact on things like cardiovascular disease. Because as you know, being overweight or obese is a big problem for people uh, who have cardiovascular disease. Being overweight or obese actually leads to cardiovascular disease. Uh, atherosclerosis, you might have heard of that term before. Essentially, it means that fat and other nasty things are getting deposited on your uh, blood vessels, on their linings. So plaque and fat and all this stuff kind of clogs your arteries and it makes your heart have to work a lot harder to pump blood to the rest of your body, and that creates uh, different types of cardiovascular disease. 
Not very good, right? Well, there's been over six clinical trials that I've seen here. There's probably much more than that. In total, we've looked at over 300 people. Uh, and basically, in all of these, we've seen intermittent fasting result in lower blood pressure, lower resting heart rate, lower blood fat levels. So it's controlling things like your cholesterol and that sort of thing. Um, and if you want links to any of these studies, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll be happy to provide them to you. Um, and there was another study done, and this is one that I'm a huge fan of, and this is going to kind of segment us here to the more physiological talk, is this study actually looked at a uh, specific type of compound called TMAO, and this kind of ties in with your gut microbiome. So TMAO stands for trimethylamine nitric oxide, and this is produced by the bacteria that live in your gut from a variety of different food sources, such as choline, which is very uh, prevalent in things like eggs, and carnitine. So with carnitine, you're looking at fish, meat, and dairy. So eggs, fish, meat, and dairy here those all sound like foods that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. So high levels of this are associated with bad things like heart disease and diabetes. So this is where the whole meat is bad for you thing actually comes from right here. They say, well, you know, because of this, because of that, that sort of thing, it's got to be, it's got to be the TMAO and meat has to be bad, right? Um, well, fasting actually reduced the production of TMAO. So essentially what we're looking at in this study, which was, it was a pilot study of intermittent fasting effects on um, me metabolomic and uh, TMA TMAO changes during a 24-hour water-only fasting in what they called the feel-good trial. And essentially what this is saying is, you know, most of us don't think meat is bad for you in the health and fitness and medical community. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen guys like Paul Saladino, uh, who's carnivore MD, uh, Mike Mutzel, uh, Ben Greenfield, all these different people, even Sammy Inkinen, who are consuming copious amounts of meat and they are showing no signs of any of the uh, downsides here. So again, you can, it's shown that you can offset those high TMAO levels with fasting. Other thing I'll say too is with these different studies on TMAO, you have to factor in the population that they're studying. So if you're eating high levels of meat, and you're someone who sits on the couch all the time and doesn't exercise or anything of that sort, I can understand how that would cause all these different problems that you're seeing, um, like the heart disease and the uh, damage to your blood vessels. Other thing I'll throw in is a lot of these times, these studies uh, use very low quality meats. So, you know, if you look at the designs in detail, some of them, they're using like chicken nuggets. 
Some of them are using low quality deli meats or, you know, low quality American meats, hot dogs, um, different pork products, or, you know, the real cheap chicken, the real cheap beef. They're not using the good stuff in most of these studies. So just kind of throwing that out there is another thing. You have to take some of these things with a grain of salt. So getting into the physiology a little more of fasting, uh, because I said I was going to do that and kind of get lost here. Um, So fasting increases your growth hormone levels exponentially. There's a a lot of studies that have proved this. Um, I'll pull a couple up now real quick. But by exponentially, I'm saying up to 12x. So increasing your growth hormone levels by about 12,000 or 1200%. Um, So it all depends on how long you're fasting for and that sort of thing. Um, But this is a nice old study here. It stood the test of time. Pull up fasting, the history, pathophysiology, and complications from the Western Journal of Medicine. This one comes from all the way back in 1982, um, but great study nonetheless. I really like how they put this together. They really broke down the physiology well. Um, they talked about fat, they talked about everything here. So on the weight loss side of things, um, during the first week, the average person was using, was losing almost a kilogram of body weight per day. And by the third week, they were losing about 0.3 kilograms per day. But again, you know, that's a lot of weight loss in a very short amount of time. Um, and they talk about other things too. But again, the biggest thing that I want you to take away from that is growth hormone levels increase exponentially. So with that, what the heck does growth hormone do? Uh, So basically, growth hormone does a a lot of different things in your body. One of the most important ones that I think is the um, mobilization of fats and fatty acids. So growth hormone helps to break down um, your body fat and help your body turn that into energy. So that's a great thing. Uh, Growth hormone is also used for different things such as preserving muscle mass. It may or may not help you build muscle mass. However, it will help prevent muscle loss. Uh, so you actually see issues, um, with growth hormone where people might not have enough of it and they can't hold on to muscle mass. And then you might see people with excessive, uh, growth hormone, like, uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of Andre the Giant. He might be a little bit past some of your time. Uh, he had something called acromegaly and he had excessive growth hormone, And because you don't lose muscle, you can obviously get very large very quick, hence the reason he was Andre the Giant, right? Um, But I like to talk about that fat component a little more because, again, the more you, you break down body fat and use it, the less you're going to have. And in America right now, we're facing a big issue of people being overweight and obese, so fasting tackles that by, act, by increasing your growth hormone levels exponentially. It 
also does this other cool thing called activating this pathway called AMP-K. And if you haven't heard of that before, it's called adenosine monophosphate, I believe. Um, but AMP-K is a metabolic pathway in your mitochondria, and it actually inhibits uh, mTOR, which is a, another pathway and another thing in itself. But AMP-K is responsible for mitochondrial biogenesis, so the growth of new mitochondria, mitochondrial health. Um, it's responsible for, I mean, the list goes on and on here. Um, let me pull up a full list for you, but this is one of the key things uh, that I take away from the fasting is it activates AMPK, so activated protein kinase. Um, and again, we talked about some of these already, but if you want to live longer, this is a good way to start because we talked about that mitochondrial benefit there. Your mitochondria, as you know, from eighth grade biology, the only thing you took away from eighth grade biology is the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So if you want more energy and you want less waste in your body and you just want to feel better overall, you want to optimize hormone production, you want to support um, aid, healthy aging, improved physical performance, the list goes on and on and on, improved insulin sensitivity, uh, start with the mitochondria because the mitochondria, as you know, are the powerhouse. So where does the power come from? Well, we just learned growth hormone supplies fats. So we're going to power our body on fat. So we're breaking down body fat and using it for energy. Sounds great. Well, the less fat you have in your body, the lower your inflammation is going to be. Because as you know, uh, inflammation levels are higher in people who are overweight and obese due to high fat content. So now we're seeing a little bit of a chain here. Well, lower inflammation means improved metabolic pathways and overall sensitivity because your body's functioning better. Less joint inflammation, like less gut inflammation. So you're going to move better. You're going to digest better. Oh, wait, the train keeps rolling. Well, if you're moving better and your body doesn't have to work so hard to break down all that crap you've been eating, it's going to improve your physical performance, right? We've got an unlimited supply of energy now that we're burning body fat. Even someone... These di different runners you see on TV, they've got 4 or 5% body fat, and they're out there running a marathon. They've got plenty of fuel in the tank. They have a lot in reserve. So think about that. Um, a pound of body fat, they said, is, what, 3,500 calories? So when have you ever gone out and burned 3,500 calories doing something physically? I burn about 3,500 calories in a day, but I'm eating, so I'm offsetting that. Um, so we said improve physical performance. Now, what's that going to do? Help with hormone production. Because as you know, being physically active helps your body produce and optimize your hormones. Things like lifting weights will produce more testosterone and growth hormone um, in both men and women for that matter. And the last piece, I kind of skipped over this one, was the insulin sensitivity. Well, if we're burning body fat and we've lowered our inflammation then when we do eat something that contains carbohydrates, 
our body's going to be ready for it because it needs to refill this thing called our muscle and liver glycogen stores. So because we're constantly burning fat, using that as fuel to the fire here, um, when we do consume something that has carbohydrates in it, our body is just going to soak it right up right away. And it's not going to put us in a state of energy imbalance because our body actually needs it. A lot of people, you know, they might be on their fifth or sixth brownie for the day. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that on occasion. Don't get me wrong. I love brownies. But some people are eating way too many carbs. And as a result, you have issues with insulin sensitivity because your body doesn't need it, but you keep putting it in uh, your body and consuming it more and more and more. So that was my little piece there. And I think that kind of covered a lot of the physiology behind fasting and how and why it does what it does. And as you see, it kind of links together, kind of like a chain. Um, There's other evidence too that intermittent fasting uh, will act as a antioxidant and allow your body to kind of reset itself because again, you're allowing your body to restore homeostasis and maintain that state for a prolonged period of time. Uh, there's some ties to increasing your lifespan, but that's something that's kind of hard to study scientifically because you don't know how long someone is supposed to live, and then you don't know when you beat that goal. There's just no way to measure that whatsoever. Um, there's also evidence for fasting, improving mood. I think I talked about that. Uh, we talked about lowering inflammation. We didn't talk about the immune system at all. Uh, with that, I don't remember if I covered that in my immune system podcasts or not, but essentially this comes through optimizing your gut health and reducing your inflammation. So as you may know, the higher the levels of inflammation in your body, the harder it is for your body to fight infection. So this is one of my big concerns is we have a nation that is you know, very largely overweight and obese individuals. And as a result, their immune system does not function as it should. So you have immune malfunction And now we're about to administer a vaccine that requires you to have a good enough immune system to mount a effective response to it. Well, what happens if people can't do that? The pandemic won't go away. So with that, we need a way to optimize our immune system and our immune system functioning. I think fasting actually presents a great argument for that by lowering inflammation and improving gut health. And again, kind of giving your body that chance to reset itself. Um, There's been some studies in animals that show fasting ties into neuroplasticity and motor learning and neural learning in animal studies. And they've actually tied that to things like chronic pain. Now, this is kind of a stretch from where I'm sitting right now because these are animal studies and we know not all animal studies carry over to humans. Kind of depends on, you know, what you're looking at. Um, Neuroplasticity is one that I don't think will carry over well. And I could be wrong about this. I've been wrong about these things before. But the human brain is the most complex organ that we have. Uh, Actually, maybe second to the gut. But either way, we don't really understand it. 
we do understand animal brains to a certain extent. So I'm not sure if that one's going to carry over. Um, <clears throat> improving sleep quality and exercise performance are other things that people talk about with um, fasting. I don't know about improving sleep quality. I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence on that. I think when they talk about that, they talk about, uh, what is it there? I think it's Ramadan fasting or something like that, or a circadian rhythm fast. Um, that one, I don't have a whole lot for you on. Now, on the topic of exercise performance, I think intermittent fasting could really help you with exercise performance, depending on what you do. Um, so for me, I always lift when I'm in a fasted state. So I am never, you know, well fed or well nourished right before I um, go into the gym. I'm going in, you know, five, maybe six in the morning if I'm late. Uh, and I hadn't eaten anything in t about 12 hours at that point. So I'm in the fasted state when I go in to work out and I always do fine. But again, I don't know if I would do better if I ate something before because I haven't tried it. Um, the studies seem to show that intermittent fasting has positive effects uh, on people who uh, are in the endurance population. And that goes back to that AMPK PGC1 alpha pathway. So AMPK actually activates this other thing called PGC1 alpha. Uh, this is also known as peroxisome proliferator activator receptor gene coactivator 1-alpha, uh, so PGC1-alpha. Uh, and essentially, this is AMPK on steroids, for lack of a better term. Um, it does all the different things in energy metabolism, mitochondrial health, biogenesis, all that sort of stuff, um, again, just on another level. So it makes sense to me that if you're an endurance athlete and you're doing something that lowers your inflammation, increases your mitochondrial stores, and improves your body to use fat as fuel, which is what you need for longer duration events like a half marathon or a marathon, the mechanism checks out soundly. It makes sense. Um, now with that, if you're someone who's kind of a strong man or power lifter or uh, I'll say even like a CrossFit athlete, um, if any of you still do CrossFit, um, anything that involves high strength, high power, that sort of thing, football linemen, that sort of thing, I would not think intermittent fasting would be a huge improver for you because you are depleting your muscle glycogen stores. <clears throat> muscle glycogen stores are your most explosive and immediate form of energy next to the ATP PC system, which, as you know, depletes very quickly. So with that, you've depleted your most short-term immediate sources of energy, and you're left with this, you know, longer-duration steady-state form of energy in the uh, fats. And you're not going to lose muscle mass thanks to the growth hormone, uh, but again, you're not going to have as much energy and power in the moment when you're trying to perform. <clears throat> so with that, if you're in those populations, 
I would consider doing your workout later in the day after you've consumed, you know, some sort of carbohydrate and some kind of food for the day, um, just so that way you're able to maximize your own performance. And while I was talking about that, I realized I missed one key factor of fasting that I really loved most, and this is its effect on androgen receptor density. So if you didn't know what an androgen receptor dense, uh, what an androgen receptor is, so <clears throat> your androgen receptors, um, if you want to get specific, it's I think it's nuclear receptor subfamily three group C member four, maybe it's member five I can't remember, um, but this is your receptor for testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. And it takes these hormones into the nucleus of your cell. Eighth grade biology just came back. Well, intermittent fasting is one of the best ways to increase androgen receptor density. What else could you do? Resistance training. You could lift weights. What else could you do? Carnitine. Carnitine comes from, what did we say? Meats, fish, raw dairy, that sort of thing. So if you're doing all three of these things, you're increasing androgen receptor density. So what does that mean? The more receptors you have, the more likely it is for the testosterone and dihydrotestosterone that flows in your blood to bind to a receptor. And as a result, it's going to carry out its effects more because it's guaranteed to bind. Think about it this way. If you have 100 molecules of testosterone floating in your blood and you only have 20 receptors, you're only going to get the effect of 20 molecules of testosterone at a time. Now, what if you had 100 molecules of testosterone and 200 receptors? Well, now you're going to get the effect of 100 uh, molecules of testosterone at a time. It doesn't matter that it's 50% of your um, receptors that are bound versus 100%, the total number is what matters. So in that case, it's a great thing for testosterone as well. Now, before I go on to talk about core training, I think I'm going to give a little break because I just spent 40, 41 minutes talking about fasting and I got deep there and threw out some words that some of you might not fully understand. So with that, feel free to pause, walk around, take a break, that sort of thing, and uh, feel free to come back for more on core training in two seconds. All right, hope you got your break. If not, we're pushing on. So this next question was about um, core training, and here is the question. I'm going to read this off. Uh, This is from a good friend of mine, he said, why do lifting noobs always preach about doing core isolation exercises when lifting Jesus gave us great compound lifts like squatting and deadlifting? And this is a great question. And I'm actually going to bring in a little bit more advanced knowledge to answer this from physical therapy. Um, I'm kind of switching hats here And instead of personal training, I'm going to switch over to physical therapy a little bit. So what do we use these different core isolation exercises 
for? Well, we use them to train people to properly activate their core. So essentially, your core, as we talked about in our core training episode, is mainly comprised of your internal core muscle system and stabilization system. This consists of the diaphragm on top, which as you saw in my post on uh, December 1st with the plank, uh, the diaphragm is actually a key muscle in your core. This is the roof of your abdomen. This is the top. It's also composed of your lumbar multifidi posteriorly. So these are deep muscles, smaller muscles that stabilize your lumbar spine. It's composed of your transversus abdominis anteriorly. So I compare this to the internal corset muscle. This is the muscle that you activate when you do a stomach vacuum exercise. And then at the bottom, your pelvic floor. And obviously we could get a whole episode on the pelvic floor and how important it is. But essentially, most people struggle with weakness of their pelvic floor. Some people have overactive pelvic floors. Uh, That's a story in itself. But most people, it's weak and unactivated. Um, But these four components form the walls of your abdomen or your core. And Proper activation of all four is essential for increasing your intra-abdominal pressure, which is something we talk about a lot with lifting. So if you struggle to activate uh, these muscles, you might compensate for it by adding a lifting belt to externally increase your intra-abdominal pressure and keep everything steady and stable and aligned where it should. Increasing your intra-abdominal pressure helps you lift more. It helps you lift safely. This is a good thing. But the problem is some people have dysfunction of the muscles that I just lined out for you. And if you do, you're not going to be able to lift as much as you should on the heavy compound lifts like squatting and deadlifting and bench pressing and overhead pressing and all that sort of thing too. Essentially, before you do any heavy compound lift, what do you do? You usually take a deep breath in and you brace yourself, right? You're activating your core muscles when you do that. Well, if they're not strong, your your ability to generate force when you do that, when you brace and breathe in and all that, is diminished. It's not as good as it should be. So, as a result, you should train those muscles specifically to make up for it. Now, notice I talked about the abs, and I said things like the transversus abdominis. I said things like the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, and I never once said obliques. I never once said rectus abdominis. Well, here's the thing, and this is going to hurt some of you. The rectus abdominis doesn't really play a very big uh, role in stabilizing your lumbar spine. Your rectus abdominis attaches to your pubic symphysis, so just above uh, your, well, your parts down there, just above that to your sternum. And that is the six-pack kind of muscle. So aesthetically, obviously, it looks pretty good if it's well-developed and brought out. But functionally, it really doesn't do a whole lot for us. It helps us uh, flex and bend our trunk, but we have a lot of other muscles that do that too. And it also helps us to posteriorly tilt our pelvis, 
But again, we have a lot of other muscles that do that too. So with that, it's not a major player in what we're talking about here for strength. So doing things to build the six-pack or the eight-pack or whatever it is that you're talking about here, that's not going to have a huge functional carryover to your ability to lift weights. Now, if your goal is bodybuilding and aesthetics, then yeah, you're probably going to spend a lot of time on it because you need this muscle uh, to go up on stage. And, you know, if you ever see a bodybuilder go up on stage and they don't have well-defined abs, they typically don't fare well in the judging and the uh, the contest overall. You know, when's the last time you've seen a you know, heavy bloated bodybuilder go up on stage with no abdominal definition whatsoever and win. You just don't hear of that, right? So that's my take on that. It's important for aesthetics. It's not important as you might think for function. But what is important is all those deeper muscles that I just mentioned. And you activate them doing different exercises that we talked about more in our core training episode. Highly recommend going back and listening to that if you get the chance. But you're looking at things like a bird dog. You're looking at things like breathing exercises for your diaphragm and progressing those breathing exercises into a plank or a hollow body hold or different anti-movements. So the function of your core is to brace and prevent movement. So you typically have movement occurring in rotation or extension. So you can train your core to resist rotation and resist extension. Um, So we talked about the plank, the hollow hold. Um, You could also throw something in like a paloff press or a anti-rotation chop lift sort of thing. There's a lot of different things you could do uh, with that. So you can train your core to resist movement. Great. Now, here's the other piece. From an athletic and functional standpoint, your core does more than just resist movement. Your core also produces movement from an athletic standpoint. So if you've ever played any kind of sport, your obliques are probably involved in twisting and turning your body side to side. And it's important to make sure you're training that appropriately. My favorite exercise to do that is actually a heavy loaded landmine Russian twist. Now, I know some of you are already saying, okay, but wait, I just learned that the core is primarily slow twitch muscle fibers. And it is. The core is meant for endurance. It's meant for a long race here. But when, you know, from a functional standpoint here, when do you ever call upon your core to, you know, athletically do something over and over and over again. Now, sure, you have the span of a 90-minute game, but say you're a lacrosse player, you're not shooting every minute for that 90-minute game at full force. You're probably getting, what, five or six shots a game at best at full force? So I'm going to train the core heavily to match that need. Now, how about in the gym? If I'm training for a squat or a deadlift or that sort of thing, I'm also going to train the core heavy because I don't need endurance from trying to squat 500 pounds. You know, I don't care if I can hold, you know, uh, active plank with good diaphragmatic breathing and all that for two minutes if I need force for 10 seconds so I can lift 500 pounds on a squat. You need to make sure how you're training your core matches the demands that you're going to put 
on it, regardless of the type of muscle fiber uh, that the core is. And with that, I'd like to argue that most people could benefit from heavy loaded core training in the lower rep ranges. And it doesn't matter if you're training for aesthetics here or just overall daily function, the core needs to be strong. And as you know from the overload principle, doing things for 25, 30 reps, prolonged periods of time, that's not going to adequately stress the muscles enough to cause adaptation. So you're not increasing strength. So what are you doing? You're probably going to increase swelling and bloat. So think about when you do high rep training in your workout. You probably do it for arms or you know, maybe like leg extensions or maybe glute kickbacks, donkey kicks or clamshells or something like that. You do it to pump up specific muscle groups. So why would you ever do high rep core training when you're going to produce a pumped up look and appearance in your abdomen? You wonder why people get bloated after training core. You know, they feel good at the time, but then they go home and an hour later, they look in the mirror and they say, what just happened? I was just at the gym and now I'm all bloated. Well, you doing that high rep core work just forced all kinds of blood and all that sort of thing into the area because it needed nutrients and it had it needed oxygen and you placed a long-term demand on it. Well, with that, your body is going to adjust appropriately and it's going to go with the pump and then it's going to um, go with a adaptation, which the adaptation to endurance, as you may know, is to kind of swell up and hold on. So as opposed to training in the lower rep ranges with heavier weights, so I'm talking like six to eight reps, um, I've even seen three to five here before, that sort of thing. The adaptation there is to br- produce dense and solid uh, muscles. So you see this with people who train very hard and very heavy. Um, you'll also see this in uh, different athletic populations too. Uh, basically, if you're training in those lower rep ranges over and over and over again, you don't get that pumped up kind of look. You don't get that cell swelling kind of look. You just produce hard, dense, solid muscles that are pretty much always the way that they are, for lack of a better term. Uh, This is actually one of the key concepts from Dan John and Pavel's book, uh, Easy Strength, is if you're training for strength, you should be lifting hard and heavy and actually training and lifting heavy things and heavy weights. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. This applies to the core too. So getting back to that initial question, I probably went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but specific isolation type exercises for the core have their place. So I might start an exercise or start a workout with something like the bird dog, I might start my workout with something like a plank to make sure my core is active and firing properly. But I'm not going to stop my core training there because my core training isn't complete if I'm not moving through functional patterns like squatting and hinging uh, without their activation. Because in life, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Like at this point, it's December 2nd when this show airs. And there's a lot of people who still don't 
you know, they're not convinced on who the next president is going to be. And I'm not going to get political and all that right now, but, you know, that's a whole mess in itself. So you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, one day you might have to squat something. You might have to deadlift something, that sort of thing. If not in the gym, in life, uh, maybe you have to move something from your house or through your house or, you know, something with your car, whatever it might be. But these are functional and fundamental skills that everyone should be able to do. And if you can't properly squat or you can't properly hinge your hips while keeping your core safe and, you know, obviously with safe core, you're decreasing your risk of inguinal hernias, you're decreasing your risk of low back issues and disc herniations, all these different things. You have to be able to do that safely. You have to. And if not, anytime you have to do any of these movement patterns with a um, load or any kind of resistance or that sort of thing, you're going to really run your injury risk through the roof. Um, same applies for athletes for that matter. Uh, think about trying to be a lineman who's going to spend an entire game pushing people off of them, pushing people away, pushing people this way, that way. Think about doing that for an entire football game, but having a weak core and all of that force gets directed right into your discs and your lower back instead of your core muscles that do that for a living, do that for a job. Think about that. So long answer, and again, I probably went on a little bit too much of a tangent there, is yes, you need to do the specific core isolation exercises, for lack of a better term, but you also need to be doing these specific high-load compound exercises to activate your core. And if you're not doing them, you're not going to get total development of your core. You know, you can't spend your entire life and your entire training career in health and fitness doing these isolation exercises if you want results. I don't care what it is you're going for. If you want better biceps, well, I can tell you right now, I can move a lot more weight with my biceps doing weighted chin-ups than I can with a dumbbell curl. I can move a lot more weight with my glutes doing a barbell hip thrust than I can with a mini band donkey kick. I can do a lot more with my quads doing a barbell squat than I can with a leg extension. And you can keep going on and on with this for pretty much any muscle group and any application here. But essentially your main point is do the compounds but make sure you're doing them right. Start with those isolation things. Make sure things are working in specific regions. So make sure your core is firing properly. Make sure your mobility is good and your hips are moving as they should. Make sure your knees are loose and moving as they should. That sort of thing. Make sure everything's working kind of part by part and then go in for the big thing. So kind of like from, uh, from a more mechanical standpoint here, more of a different application you know, if you're, um, say, say you're going for the car, right? Say you're going to rotate the tires on the car. You don't just instantly take the tires off and switch them around and life is good, right? No. First, you jack up the car. So you get the car in the proper position in order to do what you need to do. You get your tools. If you're lucky, you have a nice impact wrench and you can pop those bolts off real quick. Well, Again, if you don't have the right tools for the job, it's not going to get done, right? So you kind of do the prerequisites in order to do that ultimate thing that you're going after. 
So in health and fitness, in this case, you know, that ultimate thing you're going after is the squat or the deadlift. Make sure you do the proper progressions to get to that point. Because if you can't activate your core whatsoever, then you probably shouldn't be loading up a bar with 495 and trying to squat it for reps. So that's going to do it for today's episode. And again, this episode is brought to you by our training programs and our business as a whole. So if you or someone you know could benefit from one of our pre-built programs, whether it be the Brawn Booty program, the Brawn Booty Home Exercise program, or the Bundle, which contains both, these are both programs like no other. Uh, I know a lot of people offer pre-built programs, but very few people offer uh, in our Brawn Booty program, we have 34 weeks of programming. This is nine months of programming already done for you. Not only that, but we built in a progression based on your goals. So maybe you want to build strength and size. Maybe you want to build aesthetics and help firm and tone up your butt. Well, if you want to do that, we've got both built in for you. We have exercise swaps built in for you. So maybe your gym doesn't have a hex bar. Well, no worries. You can use something else. Maybe your gym doesn't have kettlebells. No worries. We've got swaps built in for you. No other program does these things like we've done it. We've eliminated the guesswork. We've accounted for all aspects of things. Highly recommend looking into that, checking it out. We also do, as you know, uh, consultations. So if you have questions, if you're struggling with things, come to us and we will clear it up for you. So we are kind of like... Uh, your new version of Google. You come to us, we provide you all the answers, eliminate all the guesswork for you. We do mobility screenings and other types of screenings and consultations. We do custom workout programming where I will literally spend hours and hours of my time putting together a evidence-based fitness program for you. And what I mean by that is I will literally look up research articles that look at the best exercises and best approaches to training for your specific gender, age, training goal, all these different things. Um, And if you don't believe me on that, please go back to the glute training podcast because that was a big basis for me in building the Braun Booty program. Um, Basically, I looked at a really great article that actually used EMG studies of the glutes during different exercises and it showed which exercises activate the glutes the best and which ones activate them the least. So obviously from that you can build a more effective training program that better optimizes your time and as you may know I've used those exact same workouts in there in my own training and I've increased my hip thrust over 200 pounds now in a matter of about three months. That's pretty significant. And obviously stronger glutes are tied to pretty much everything beneficial you can think of. Um, So lower injury risk, improved athletic performance, the list goes on and on and on. So highly recommend you check those out. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate your support and love. Make sure you like and subscribe and share with a friend. Thank you as always for listening. We'll see you next Monday uh, for another Motivational Monday. Have a good one. Take care.